Good morning, my name is Peter, I'm a recovered alcoholic. <clears throat> Grateful to be alive and sober and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I thank the committee and everyone who was connected with putting this thing together and having Marion and I here for the weekend to share with you. So before we get going, if there's only a few of us here, but let's just give it up for the committee and Johnny for putting this on for us. <clears throat> yeah. I, um, I love getting around like this and uh, occasionally you get to uh, some hotels that aren't so nice and more often you get to uh, really need accommodations like this so I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I was in Fresno last weekend for a big book workshop and I had a whole weekend to myself to share uh, my experience with the book and I flew into Fresno which from, you know, south, from down here up to Fresno was quite a ride, uh, a couple of planes to get there, and I get off the plane in Fresno, and they tell me it's in a ski lodge, and already I'm panicking, because I'm from Brooklyn, New York, I don't know ski lodges, and uh, they tell me it's about 8,000 feet up a mountain, I thought it was a little hill, and we get to the top of the thing, and uh, there's guys walking around with, like, um, camping equipment and bandanas and, and hiking shoes and I look like my cousin Vinny when I got out of the van. <clears throat> I got suede, I'm dressed like this basically up in the mountains and uh, I had resentments all weekend because my suede shoes were full of dirt and uh, <clears throat> it was interesting so being down here is pretty cool. Um, every once in a while you check into a crack motel and there's a conference there and you're wondering who's in charge of this you know. So I'm glad to be here. Uh, Loving God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I say that because I am, and anything less than that great fact would be falsely humble. But it is the great news, it is the essential fact of my life through this God that I get to talk to you about being a recovered alcoholic. And I don't say that to separate myself from anyone in this room to be different or special. It is the first promise in the book, and I get to experience getting recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Not cured, not special, not different, but recovered from this thing called alcoholism. And on June 23rd, 1988, that was the, far, the furthest thing from my mind. June 23rd, 1988, I came to in another hallway. I was homeless in 1988 and uh, panhandling and doing a lot of the earthy things we tend to do when we're panhandling on the street looking to get money for another drink. And um, I was drinking and eating Valium. I couldn't get away from it. I had uh, six treatment centers behind me. I had tried Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, nothing worked. My priest tried praying over me, uh, psychiatrists and therapists and treatment and beatings and you name it. And yet I could not get to see my truth. And uh, June 23rd, 1988, when I came to in the back of a, an abandoned building, I was, had room and board in the back of a filthy building in uh, Alphabet City. Uh, when I came to that morning, guys, the, the plan wasn't to go to treatment, go to AA, and speak at conferences. <laughs> and then be Moses, you know. Um, I came to that morning, and it was another morning where the, the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair was who I was being. It was part of my beingness. Hope was gone. There were no relationships. I was unemployed. I was homeless. 
And I remember crawling up off the floor that day, and I hadn't bathed or changed my clothes in months. It was a long time I was out there. I was beaten down pretty good, uh, weighed about 130 pounds. I was urinating blood. I mean, I was in serious trouble. And um, Bill says in this story, the courage to do battle was not there. And uh, that thing, when we get to the end of the road, I didn't make a decision to get there. It was given to me. I was surrendered. I was rescued from this power called God. And when I came to, I couldn't do it. And I hit a place of despair. I mean, I was experiencing despair. But June 23rd, 1988, that day, despair showed up in like living color. And I couldn't do it anymore, and I knew it. And if I knew in my heart, if I had another drink, I'd probably die. And if I don't drink, I'm going to probably die. And what do I do now? And I didn't want to die. And my truth was given to me. This power called God will rescue us while we're in AA, and we run out of road, and we bottom out, and we unwind, we unravel spiritually. And it'll happen to us when we're out there, as many of us get here. And what I experienced was a deep level of despair that day which I have found is a necessary ingredient for many of us to embrace a whole new way of life. Page 27 says, ideas, attitudes, and emotions were once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are cast aside. I was walking with ideas, attitudes, and emotions, which I owned. They were part of my beingness, and nothing can penetrate until June 23rd, 1988. And not by my doing, God said, enough, I have other work for you to do. And I made a plea to this God, I don't want to die. I ran out of road. In that place of despair, that necessary ingredient, there had to be something on the other side to pull me out of that. And somehow, some way, even though I despised this God, it was my only place to turn. And I started to remember Alcoholics Anonymous coming in as H&I to the treatment centers and my spots, my stops in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you guys had better be, be there for me because there's nothing else left. I remember surrendering to God that they take me from this. I don't want to die. I wasn't saying, please get me sober, get me a job, get her back, fix me up, get me money, is I don't want to die. I was truly at the end of the road, which my God had to push me to to get my attention. And God will get us, get our attention, whether it's we go on a spree and the alcoholism goes underground and resurfaces in other areas. The same way some of us can go forwards through the steps, we can start to go backwards through the steps and start to unravel with the emergence of the ego. But June 23rd of 1988, there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. I was experiencing truly the death of me, the death of self before the physical death. And I wasn't too far from that. And that's not embellishing. That is the gospel truth. I was in serious, serious trouble that day. And I made this plea to God, and I remember hearing this. And those of us who've had these God experiences know exactly what I'm talking about. I made this plea. There were no reservations, no lurking notion. There was nothing. I don't want to die. And what I got was this little whisper, enough and I have other work for you to do. And when that came to me, it was as, as if it happened yesterday, whispering in this ear. I says, oh my God, this is what the people, the treatment centers told me, the people in AA told me, what your stories told me, that we're going to get so sick, we're going to start to hear voices, which mean we have totally lost our mind, and when there's no re point of no return. And here's the good news. 
in that place of despair, where I truly ran out of road, there was absolutely nothing left. I had a pulse and a breath, basically, and I made a plea to this loving God. And I get this whisper, the thunder of silence, if you will, in my ear. And I thought I was completely out of my mind. The good news is I was completely out of my mind. <laughs> and what I pray for everyone at this conference and for your sponsees and for their sponsees is this, that we completely lose our mind and pray it never returns. The best thing I can do is completely lose my mind. It's the only place I experience this present moment. It's the only place I experience God. And it's the only place I cannot be attached to external things. And I lost my mind and out of the mind and into spirit. And that's how we register with God. That's how we get in line with God. That's how we can hear the voice of God. I can have nothing going on in the head. And for me, everything had to get removed. Enough, I have other work for you to do. And what God gave me in that moment was a moment of clarity, wholeness of mind, a moment of sanity. The window opened up, the spiritual window opened up. We talk about obsession, phenomenon called craving, and the spiritual malady. What I've come to find out is that the spiritual malady is my disconnection, if you will, with God. The spirit never got sick. That's how it shows up in the moments of despair. If the spirit was sick, I was dead by now. But in this place of complete wreckage of me, the spirit was still there. And everything gets removed. Like it happens to us in sobriety, everything has to be out of the way for me to hear this. And I tried to make some calls to my dad and God, God connected the dots. And I landed in my seventh and God willing last treatment center and alcohol beat me into a state of reasonableness. I was listening. The same counselors I saw who I mocked out, I was listening to. Alcoholics Anonymous, who I th thought was one big fraud, one big uh, mistake, it was a money-making organization. I was looking for you. I became split wide open and only in our brokenness, guys, only when we're split open in our brokenness can God's light shine in and begin to work on us. It's when I'm walking around uh, thinking I'm spiritual, I'm probably not. It's the quest to experience spirituality and I don't even know it when you do. It's like the guy who says, you know, I'm a really humble guy. Let me tell you all about it. He's probably an egomaniac, right? <laughs> It's the quest for spirituality. In fact, if you ask me the question, what is spirituality, and I answered you, I misunderstood the question. But it's the searching, it's the clawing, it's the trudging, it's the walking, it's the chopping wood and carrying water. And most folks see it before we do. My spiritual transformation, <clears throat> if you will, began June 23, 1988, in the back of this abandoned building hallway. The light got turned on. The spirit woke me up. <clears throat> I was not sound asleep anymore going through life thinking I'm awake. For most of us, it happens in that place of despair where we say, I need to do something. Something's got to change. I can't go on like this. And sometimes it's our boss firing us. <clears throat> sometimes it's our spouse saying they're going to leave us. Sometimes it's the children saying, Daddy, what's wrong with you? Whatever it is, it's that little moment in, the, in despair where the pilot light gets turned on and the beginning of an experience starts. 
We will get it. We will get it as we're going through this big book called Alcoholics Anonymous. We will get it somewhat by the time we enter the world of the spirit intent. We've been lit up. We're in line with God. We're not out of line with God. We're seeking God. We're carrying a vision of God's will into all our activities. It's less about me and more about you. There's been an inner transformation. That's guaranteed in our book that we're made new from the inside out. But the beginning of that happens for many of us in our worst moments. When our back is against the wall and there is nowhere to go, despair. I'm grateful for June 23rd, 1988. I'm grateful for the bottoms I hit in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous because all it did was had me turn back to God and a place of surrender. And I will tell you, my prayers to God, if, they're not, if I'm not talking surrender, I am not talking to God. My prayers are one of mercy and surrender. And I practice fidelity to this God, not infidelity to this God. I have no other gods before my God. That is a requirement that my father <clears throat> put to me in order to walk this spiritual path. June 23rd, 1988. Who knew about this? I just don't want to die. There were no attachments to, I need to get her back. I need to get my job back. I was done. Six treatment centers over a number of years. I think my first treatment center was about maybe, maybe 20. I'm 28 walking around with a, a body of a man of 100. I got liver damage. I got all sorts of damage. I couldn't even stand up straight. My knees wobbled. My hands were shaking. I was experiencing serious trouble of alcoholism. And I could not see the truth until June of 88 showed up. And I went into my seven treatment center. And I'll tell you this. I was up there about 10 days. Marion always says, I think I overreacted. <clears throat> 10 days I'm in this treatment center. I'm thinking I, I, maybe I overreacted. Maybe I can have one more little drinky poo so I can go back to group that Chris was talking about last night, those groups, and talk about my inner child, my dysfunctional family. And I was interrupted. And they sent me out to Minnesota for more treatment. I lived in Minnesota about a year. And while I was out there, I was took, taken to a meeting called the Three Legacies Meeting. These folks talked about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They talked about service. They talked about unity of fellowship. And I wanted what they had to offer. Things were already changing in my early months in recovery. I was attracted to people who were walking a spiritual path. I was unattracted to people who weren't. God was doing my thinking. God was directing my thinking. God was walking this path for me. The thing about the spiritual path, from the first day to where we are right now, it's always crossroads. We're always looking at different crossroads. Which way am I going to go? Because we all know right from wrong especially for in this deal a while. What road am I going to take? And when we're spiritually fit, it hurts to take the wrong road. We get sick quick. And the discipline of this path is a tremendous amount of freedom. But I need to walk this path. I didn't know the path. Where am I supposed to go? And they tell me to walk a path I never walked before. To work with 12 steps I never did before. And to, an experience, to experience a God that I don't know. How do I do this? What an order? I can't go through it. And the only thing that kept me putting one foot in front of the other, allowed me to chop wood and carry water, was the fire that burned in my soul to get right with my Creator.
And that's like that for many of us. I look for that. I look for that okayness. I look for something right in the bottom of a whiskey bottle for years, and I came up empty all the time. It worked shortly, but it was always followed by another drunk to get right again. And I come into Alcoholics Anonymous in my brokenness. I show up to the altar in my brokenness to this power called God, and you and he, little by solely, put me back together, where I'm before you this morning with a little bit of dignity, a little bit of right-sizeness, maybe a little bit of humility, and an upstanding member of this fellowship. That I cannot do on my own with my best intentions, my best motives, and all my willpower. But something happens to folks like me in our brokenness currently where I surrender back to God. And I began a journey through this work. I, I was listening to folks who say make 90 meetings in 90 days and if that works for you, I'm not here to tell you you're wrong, but it didn't work for me. I would hear folks say put the plug in a jug and if that works for you, that's great, it didn't work for me. I'm the alcoholic on page 21. The plug is never going in the jug. It's going to come out and stay out until I'm done and I get another one. And 90 meetings in 90 days, I couldn't even fathom making it to midnight, let alone another 89 days after today. I need power now. My book says lack of power is our dilemma. With power, no dilemma. Where am I going to get this power? Now I was around you for an hour and I felt wonderful, but I had to go home. And as soon as I hit the fresh air, it was on me again, and I'd have to run to another meeting. I was lacking a connection with this power. And I got a sponsor and he broke down this book for me. And this book, this methodology delivered me a God of my understanding. And I will tell you, it's the same God I grew up with. Just a different set of perceptions and conceptions about God. There is a relationship that I have with God. My prayer meditation is not one of the 10,000 things I have to do today. It is the most important thing to, that I have to do today. I give attention to God. And as I go through this work, what I begin to do is starve the ego and feed the spirit. Prior to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had it backwards. And it was only by forging out on an anvil and destroying the self that I was able to experience this. That doesn't feel good. The ego wants to push back. The false self wants to push back. All the manifestations of self are being threatened. But only if I'm at the bitter end in a place of despair will I say, keep it coming because one day at a time I'm still not drinking. And that's all I would have settled for at the beginning, just not drinking. I had no idea my God was going to give me all of you in paradise. It's interesting, growing up in, in where I grew up in my family, the belief systems were, be a real man, depend upon no man, depend upon no woman, depend upon no one. The only thing you can trust is the money of your pocket. Be a John Wayne, head up, shoulder square. Do not depend on anyone. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, completely split apart, and I find out I need you. I need to depend on you. I need to depend on God. It flew in the face of all my belief systems. My ideas, attitudes, and emotions were being pushed out. How willing was I? I got to take a look at my step one considerations and 43 pages in my book about step one, that I have a problem with the mind, I have a problem with the body, I have a disconnection with God. And only through a connection with God was the mind gonna get remedied to this renewal of the mind that my body's not gonna tell me to drink. 
During my first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not opposed to child for Alcoholics Anonymous. I was going on every spree imaginable. Food sprees, money sprees, sex sprees, fear sprees, and the thing we all suffer from, the thinking sprees, because we're always thinking. And as soon as I'm thinking and trying to figure stuff out, I've stepped into the self-managing department, and that's not good for any of us. But there I was. December 22nd, 1988, I ran out of road again sober and I was getting thirsty. And I made a plea to this God again. And I drove to this gentleman's door and he said to me this, where are you with God in the 12 steps? I said, well, when do you start the steps? He says, when you stop throwing up, you're late. I wanted a hug. Let's go home and read page 449 and talk about your feelings. He ruffled my feathers, but he gave me truth. And I will tell you, I'd rather be accused of telling you the truth than be accused of telling you a lie. This book, this fellowship, all of it, is about driving a drunk back to God. Nothing less than that great fact. And what I want to be, what we ought to be, is a pep rally for the power of God, shouting God from the rooftops about the, indeed the miraculous, the age of miracles are still with us, how folks like me and folks like us come in here broken with nothing and get resurrected in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. God could have gave this message to many, many minds, great minds of our time. And what he did was got a drunk to go work with another drunk and somehow they have an experience with God. The entire spiritual path, Alcoholic synonymous makes absolutely no sense. How could one broken drunk heal another broken drunk? But in the realm of the spirit, it's perfect, it's divine. That's how we get here this morning. Indeed, the miraculous happens in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to look at my power, choice, and control, lack of it, in step one. And if I felt screwed on the way into AA, I felt even more screwed after I looked at my first step that it told me I'm going to drink and there's no way out. And that only a power greater than myself was going to restore me to this wholeness of mind. And at the beginning, it was a group of drunks for good orderly direction. I depended upon you, the camaraderie of the sacred fellowship. And I made a decision in three to get there. And I got to look at page 62 and 63, the third step considerations. And of course I was willing. Was it the most profound, deepest third step decision I made with the sponsor? Absolutely not. I was still new. But the spirit of willingness to go there was. My experience has been this. It isn't so much the words I say to God or how long I pray, but the passion or the intent or the fervor at which I pray. And that place of desperation, God scoops us up and embraces us. The best thing I can give to God is my surrender and my shortcomings, my sin. I'm depending upon you, God, which is really what Third Step's all about. I'm surrendering my life as I know it to you to fix it because I can't. And immediately I was given the fourth step and I began this journey in four through nine where the self was started to fall away, the removal of self and what's left for many of us at the end as we enter the world of the spirit, albeit the beginning of a spiritual transformation for some of us, is what the Oxford groups for, folks talked about. We're brought back to purity, honesty, unselfishness and love. The process of recovery I have found for myself has been a forward journey backwards. As I'm going through the steps, what I'm doing is returning home. By the removal of self, I experience more God. And if I am full of self, I have less, less God. As I enter the world of the Spirit, I've returned home to that place of divinely inspired me.
And anyone on this path can relate to that. Nothing looks the same anymore. Purity, honesty, unselfishness, and love. So I love the effect produced by God, so I continue to seek this power with the desperation of a drowning man. And for this, I feel very blessed. I have a sponsor. I call him every Wednesday night. I take no commitments on a Wednesday night because at 7 o'clock, I'm on the phone with my sponsor and I'm reading him inventory. I'm sharing my life with him. Sometimes we're doing scripture. Sometimes we're just talking. But for one hour on the phone on Wednesday night, I'm with my sponsor. I meet some cats who are sober 25 and 30 years and say, you still have a sponsor? You still read inventory? Yeah, I do. Because left to my own devices, you have a different speaker here this morning. Accountability and responsibility. And so I share with him. It's part of my 11-step practice in turning over inventory. I got to look at step five when I sat with my sponsor, and as he gave me feedback from my fourth-step inventory, I got to take a peek inside the inner workings of my mind and how I operate. One of the clearest revelations I came out of uh, 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 an inventory that I did was getting divorced and holding on to a relationship that was, that was over. My ex-wife was an alcoholic, a cocaine addict, a pothead, pillhead, you name it, she was doing it. And I still was trying to hold this thing together. You know what my inventory read to me? I was holding on to because I was afraid of being alone. It wasn't out of love. It wasn't out of fidelity. It wasn't because I was a great guy. I just don't want to be alone. So I'll hold on to a mess rather than just being with me. What a rude awakening that was. And how selfish and self-centered and self-seeking was I. How many of my relationships look like that? I was a collision with everyone. I learned this in step five. And one of the most sacred things I got out of step five was another drunk giving me his time hour after hour after hour and treating that like a life and death uh, errand. I got to look at my first step for life with six and seven, the defects of character, which were gonna take me back to a drink. If I didn't turn my defects of character over to God and have God deal with them, those defects were going to deal with me What happens to many of us, I'm one of them, is on this path of recovery as we're moving through the steps, I want to turn everything over to God. God, please fix me, heal me. We do all the surrender. We're begging for mercy. Then it comes, rubber hits the road. And what many of us really mean is, I want to have defects tweaked. I want to have this one removed. Don't touch that one. This one's okay. I really, I don't really want to go through that archway completely. Can I put one foot in? I got the rest, God. Like my money and sex, I got that, God. You just take away the booze problem. And then we hit, the end of the, we hit the end of the road, and what I was always looking for, quite frankly, to some degree, was redemption. Am I ready to be changed? What's my readiness to be changed? What's my readiness to be transformed? Because this work, this fellowship, and this God will transform us. <clears throat> Am I ready to walk that road? I had an eight-step list. It's really interesting. When I'm writing inventory, they're already talking about, they're hinting out, set these matters straight. While I'm writing inventory, they're saying, listen, these people you're angry with, you're going to go make amends to them soon. Why don't know I can't go through with it? But something happens to a guy like me. By the time I roll down the shade into eight and nine, the power was there. The willingness to go make amends was there. And little by slowly, I started to make amends. And as I made amends with the past, the past went to bed. I made peace with my past. And until I make peace with my past, I cannot be present now. <clears throat> 
If I'm still dragging around yesterday, how could I be present now? If I'm still driven by the voices of yesterday, how could I be present now? I have a responsibility in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's to go work with a drunk, primary purpose. And if I'm still loaded up with me, what kind of message am I passing on to you? Am I using you just to unload and stay sober? Or am I trying to work with you to help you stand in the light finally? This road to recovery, so many folks brought me into the light. How many times did I push back? How many times did people bring me recovery on a silver platter and I push back? This time it wasn't like that. I started to make amends and little by slowly I found myself being present and awake and finally an okayness inside of me. I was being redeemed and I kept seeking this power, putting one foot in front of the other. There were amends I was able to make because of this power and I wasn't truly aware of the depth of this power while I'm making amends to the most difficult uh, people I could imagine. Those people on my eight step list that there was no way on God's earth I was gonna go see these people. Next thing you know is a knock on the door and I'm sitting in front of them making amends. And as I'm making amends, my personal relationships are starting to get better. I'm not experiencing being a prey to misery and depression. I am not loaded up with fear. I'm finding I can be of help to other people. I was making a living. The opposites are to be devilments. I was experiencing the great fact on page 25 where I knew that everything had changed. My perceptions and conceptions about everything, including God, had changed. And I was waking up on Monday morning without a Sunday hangover. I was waking up on Tuesday without a Monday hangover. I was waking up free. Freedom from the bondage of self. The shackles were finally unhooked. And I go into prayer today not to be some spiritual guy, just to release the shackles to be of maximum service to those around me, quite frankly. And that is just the gospel truth. I am clear that my God got me sober not to do this. This is a little piece of my recovery. I've seen a lot of folks crash and burn thinking this behind a podium is, is, is recovery. This is a little piece. I'm here to bear witness for you. God got me sober to go work with his kids and bring them here. I didn't get sober so I can have a job. God gave me a job so I can have a car. God gave me a job, put money in my pocket. God gives me money so I have good health. God gives me health so I have a relationship. God gives me a relationship. God puts a roof over my head. That's not why I got sober. That's not why God got me sober. God got me sober to touch another drunk the way you guys got me. It's the sacredness of this fellowship. And when I lose that primary purpose, I'm in serious trouble. Sitting down knee to knee with a drunk over a lousy cup of coffee and walking them through this book, sharing my life experiences with them. This is God's work. How could a selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed person like me with an ego the size of this room and an inferiority complex with the size of this room get okay with me and say, I'll give you my time, I'll walk you through the book and share with you what was freely given to me and take no credit for it. That's my Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what we get to do in here. Isn't it funny how we're so intimately connected? I don't know many of you, but as soon as you say you're an alcoholic, I know you. I tell you I'm an alcoholic, you know me. We have the same operation through life, the fears, the uncertainties, the doubts, the ego trying to show up, all the manifestation stuff. I know what it's like walking in a room late and you think 3,000 people are saying, look who's here, he's late, let's talk about him. <clears throat> Just a little self-absorbed, not much. 
As I start to clean up amends, our book says, we've entered the world of the Spirit. How free do I want to be? If I'm experiencing bondage this morning, do I want to get free? If I'm experiencing freedom, do I want to experience more freedom? I love the effect produced by God. And my growing and understanding and effectiveness has no lid. How far do I want to go with this God? How much do I want to know my Creator? So I can be a maximum service to people around me in Alcoholics Anonymous, my sponsorship, and be a member of good standing of this sacred fellowship. And take some heat along the way. Guys, I've been thrown under a bus many times, accused of false things, making money off Alcoholics Anonymous, who could be further from the truth, uh, speaking too much and it's about an ego thing, taking people through this big book, walking into a meeting with a big book and people saying, you're going to troublemaker because you're bringing that book in here. I will take the heat. That's how I found my teacher. He got up to a podium and shared his experience out of his big book and didn't apologize for God. And my spirit says, go get him. We can't hide it in a closet, but shout from the rooftops about God. So I slide into this, this as I'm cleaning up amends, I've entered the world of the spirit. I go to a dimension I never experienced before. I go from what I know to a place called the unknown. I have no idea this is uncharted territory for a guy like me. Uh, God consciousness, experience a God that's pristine, that's constant, that's consistent, that's all love and no opposite with no angles. And all I have to do is surrender to it. And some of the buzzwords I walk around with for years now are turn, watch, aware, and observe in step 10 as I'm going through my day. Turn, watch, aware, and observe. Turn in in order to go out. If I don't turn in, I will go without. So, Father, where are we going? Father, how do we do this? Father, what am I wearing? Father, let's get me to work. Father, get me to the podium. Father, I'm yours. I'm doing your will today, not mine. I surrender to your will, not mine. One of the prayers I work with is, God, show me what relationships to have and how to have them. Please remove the hypocrisy that exists in me. Keep my soul from being poisoned. And I put on the armor of God and out the door I go and I am more in touch with others. I am more on the course with you than if I went in alone. There's a vicious cycle we can experience right around now because we clean up amends. We're part of Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a few little sponsees. We're well known in AA. And the ego says, way to go. You did good. And we don't have to pray today because we're busy. I got a deadline to meet. I got to wash the car. I got to take the kids to school. I mean, I'll check in with God and we start praying on the way to work. I get nervous when folks say they meditate while they're driving on the way to work. And if I'm praying on the way to work, that's wonderful. I'm talking to God. That's a wonderful thing. We do that all day long. But the prayer time while I'm driving, you know what that reminds me of? When you're talking to someone and sharing everything to them, and they're on their phone texting and say, just give me one second here. What? You're dying? Okay, hold on one second. <laughs> I give God my attention, and he tells me now go to work. I've entered the world of the Spirit. Turn, watch, aware, and observe. Watch, aware, and observe. Those words are interchangeable. How am I doing? How's my speech? How am I doing? You're asking me a question. Do I have the answer already? So you think I'm Moses? Or am I listening? 
Am I standing for the truth or am I falling for anything? How am I doing? Am I trying to carry the vision of God's will into all my activities? One of the exercises I do is turn to God at once if something has hooked me. Because fear will hook us from time to time. A resentment might hook us from time to time. I turn back to the God. I turn all things into the Father of light. Of myself, I am nothing. The Father doeth the works. Is it going to exist right now, right around 10? Or is the ego starting to kind of stretch its muscles and start to bore a hole in the spiritual path? And I'm not really working with 10. I still have some amends to make. I'm not looking at defects. I'm not sharing anything. I'm really not sponsoring anyone. I really don't turn it over. I'm behaving like a drunk without a drink in me and suddenly I'm drunk. How did that happen? So I seek, watch away and observe. How am I doing? If I'm hooked at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning or something, or like when I was at the ski resort, my suede shoes were getting full of mud. I had a little resentment going on. What I do is I turn to God. I discuss it with someone immediately if I have a resentment or a fear. And then what I tend to do is, can I be helpful to others? Love and talents of others is our code. But one of the tools I work with, and some folks do this, some folks don't. If I have something that hooks me, I will put pen to paper. No resentment's acceptable. All resentments are unacceptable. And if I got something boring a hole in me, I'm not going to wait till later on. If I have an opportunity to put pen to paper and write some four-column inventory, so when I call you up and say, can you hear an inventory? It says we, work with, we talk to someone immediately. We discuss it with someone immediately. I have a sponsor and two other immediately guys. I give them spiritual consent and vice versa. So when I call up Joe and says, Joe, I have an immediately, he says, go. Resentment caused by it affected me, where am I at fault? And guides me through that, navigates me through me. Another surrender and off I go, where can I be helpful to others? Love and talents of others is my code and I'm off. I was step 10 talks about carrying the vision of God's will into all my activities. And it also talks about how sanity gets returned, which can cause so much controversy in some of our sacred rooms. It's normal to think about a drink because I'm an alcoholic. Absolutely, if I'm untreated. According to my big book, I'll get recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and it just comes. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to play the tape to the end. I don't have to remember where I come from. This loving God will not keep me walking around with a loaded pistol when I got to go help his children. When I need to listen to him, step 10 says I get recovered from this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It is given, it just comes, contingent on my spiritual condition. What am I doing to work out in the spiritual gym? Am I getting my soul food? And the requirements aren't that difficult. Prayer and meditation twice a day. A little inventory sharing and work with others. Make some meetings. Think about the price for God and the price we pay for a drunk. It's like kissing a newborn on the cheek to get sober and live in the spiritual path. And so I go through my day with my step 10 and I work with lots of inspirational books. Non-conference approved, but they're inspirational books. Like scripture and a lot of other things. Let me share a quick story with you. I'm a Catholic. 
And uh, when I was growing up, my mom would take me to my religious community, and I went through all the things you're supposed to do growing up as a Catholic. And around 14 or 15, I didn't want to be a priest anymore. I wanted to uh, chase women, and I found drink, and it was all over. And I moved away from that. And even in my early sobriety, even though I was praying to the carpenter, even though once in a while I'd visit my church, I had lots of contempt for some of the things that many of us have read about. This distrust, this broken relationship with this community called the church. And I go through inventory and I'm claiming to be in 10, 11, and 12, but I have this hidden resentment that's just laying around like a cancer. And I became so accustomed to it, I justified it away. I minimized it away, which we can do at resentments. In fact, at some point, we believe that God agrees with your resentment. Hey, Joe, if I had that resentment, I'd be angry too. Even though I'm God, I have a resentment. And we just kind of, you know, poop along. And I'm thinking, well, I pray to this God. I adore this God. But that establishment has some things that they need to take a look at. I'm not going back until they fix it, right? And um, <laughs> so I'm going through this work living in 10, 11, and 12, and revisiting the steps, because I do that annually. And I'm reading the institutions part of the fourth step inventory. Resentment church, resentment church, resentment church, resentment. And my sponsor said to me this, after he let me go, he said, Peter, <laughs> you know when he do that? Peter, that means you're in trouble. And uh, he says, do you go to AA meetings? I says, yes, Mickey, of course I do. He says, is every AA meeting a healthy meeting? I says, no, some are sick, some are well. Are there 13 steppers in AA? Absolutely. Are people claiming sobriety, but they're really loaded up on, on pills? Yes. Do people, you know, do this and that? Yes. Do you keep going back? Yes. And you keep bringing a spirit and practicing love and tolerance and trying to be part of the solution? I says, yes. He says, how come you can't do that with your church? Silence. We don't like silence. We like to push back. Yeah, but there was no, I was stuck. I love when sponsors do this to us, especially when we're around a little while and they give you consideration and you're pinned against in the corner. What do I do with this? And I knew he was right. Whether I revisited that place or not, I had a resentment. I had bad mouthed it. I was part of the headlines as well. How dare I? I had tons of contempt right investigation, and there was an amends to be made. So I go on a Saturday to something called confession, and I go into this little booth and I sit with the priest. And I tell him what I'm there for. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I've been saying this and feeling this way and thinking this way, and he obviously gave me absolution, but he didn't give me a lecture. He understood. This priest was sent there for me that Saturday afternoon. He's, I understand. I said, Father, what can I do to make this right? He said, you can do one thing. Can you come to Mass tomorrow morning? He didn't say for the next year. He says, can you come tomorrow morning? Okay, it was one of my any Lent. So I took Marion and we went in because Mr. Big Shot was afraid to walk into Mass all alone. And I walked into Mass and as I'm walking up to the church, the bells are going off and here come the tears. And we sat and they do the Lord's Prayer and I'm crying and I'm crying and I'm free. I went back the next Sunday, I went back the next Sunday, and if I'm not on the road, you will find me at a 10.30 Mass every Sunday morning. It is the most glorious spot for me to be, along with Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been there so long, now they've asked me to be a lector and a Eucharistic minister. And I stand at the altar, and I serve communion, and it is one of the bright spots of my life. Talk about a loving God revolutionizing us and bringing us home so we get right. Head up, shoulder square. 
That's why I'm grateful to be a member of this sacred fellowship, because it isn't about just removing the drink from us, which God does. It's about giving us a life. I don't want my life back. I had no life. I got a life in here. That's why it's none of my business. I want no part in my life. I don't want to put my hands on the wheel. I give it to you and I give it to my heavenly father. And all I have to do is seek and listen. Be still and listen. So that's why I put pen to paper. That's why I hit my knees a few times a day. God has put me on a three times a day prayer meditation. It's about 10 years now. In the middle of the afternoon at work, I go in my car, go into a parking lot, I hide out, and I work with this religious practice and go back into the mess of treatment center work. And at night, I take a few minutes to write some inventory, seek my God, a few minutes of meditation when I retire at night, and I'm done. God has given me a, a, a purpose-driven life. I'm clear on what my purpose is in this life. For years, I was looking for it in a whiskey bottle. Tell me what to do. I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm clear on what my mission is. Go work with a drunk. Transmit something I've given you. And I stay out of the way. When I do these talks, I often kid around saying, I hope I never show up for these talks. I don't mean I don't want to be here. I hope Peter Marinelli doesn't give you a talk this morning because that guy is fear-based, insecure, and the ego as big as this room. I don't want to be liked. I want to be worshipped. Give me the wave as soon as I'm done. Everyone want me to speak at your group. Make sure you give me a number and say, you've enlightened my life. Without you, I would have been drunk. I might feel a little bit better about myself. So I get still and ask God to help me. And I continually work with step 10. Step 10 promises. What great promise is to share a newcomer. Can we speak experientially about what it's like living in the world of the spirit? The civilians have no idea what we're talking about when we say things like that. They think a lunacy commission should be appointed for us. But we know when we talk about what it's like living in the world of the spirit, what it's like having a relationship with God, a oneness with God, not separateness. I'm weak flesh, another book says, sold unto the slavery of sin. I do the things I don't want to do, the good things I can't do, the bad things I'm tempted to go lead us not into temptation, because in my brokenness I will be tempted and follow out. And I surrender to this God, I'm made right again in my brokenness. My 11th step, I remember when I first started to pray and meditate, they were out of desperation, and I knew nothing about meditation. I speak lots of folks about meditation. And sometimes I get to elaborate a whole bunch from the podium about meditation. And some folks embrace that and some folks won't. I was doing a talk, uh, I think it may have been Mississippi, and I was talking about meditation and my practice with it. And some guy comes from the back of the room, you know, and I'm marching towards you with a big book under their arm, right? <clears throat> and he says, can I talk to you? And I said, go ahead. He says, what you talked about meditation was Eastern philosophy. It had nothing to do with alcoholics and all. You broke a tradition. He went on and on and on. I said, thank you for sharing, which frustrated the hell out of him. <laughs> the following morning, I'm giving a talk on a Sunday morning. I get done, and he's walking towards me again, big book under his arms. Can I talk to you? I says, yes. He says, can you sponsor me? So this is how this works. It's a true story. <clears throat> this God will resonate. And sometimes when they're angry like that, part of my practice in step 11 is meet the resistance with no resistance. Because if I push back on you and I argue with you and I get a debate with you, now I'm guilty of what I just accused you of. 
This is about love and tolerance, all love, uh, no opposite, acceptance, patience, and forgiveness. Can I forgive others who've hurt me, or am I still holding on to a, a grudge? Am I justifying the grudge? Am I practicing a spirit of forgiveness who people who may throw us under a bus? Am I practicing forgiveness towards life which is problematic, a little world of impermanence, and sometimes life is just unfair? We get things dumped in our lap, you say, how come me? Can I forgive? Because I have found in the spirit of forgiveness, I get free, which allows me to listen closer to God and pay more attention to you than my stuff. First time I meditated lasted about two minutes. This person, I knew this woman who was into meditation. She belonged to an ashram. She was attracted to AA. She said, let me teach you. And she put me on a timer, two minute timer. And she showed me posture and breath and everything I've studied and all the people I've sought out about meditation, I was very attracted to that, talked about the importance of posture and breath, posture and breath, posture and breath. And she showed me this in two minutes, felt like 20 years. I had more noise going on. Until I experienced silence, I don't realize how noisy I was. Until I experienced love, I don't realize how much anger I had. And until I experienced a little bit of humility, I don't realize how much of an egomaniac I was. And so as I'm trying to get still, I'm realizing how much noise I have in my head. It was constant traffic, static. Like when you're trying to talk over a loud television and you finally realize it's loud and shut it off and go, oh my God, that was so loud. This is how we walk around all day long. And I'm just going to switch gears for one second. Stillness. The predator called the mind. Who we worship. How many folks, just to show of hands, drove to the hotel, drove to this conference alone? Anyone? Okay, all of you are lying. I'm gonna tell you why. <clears throat> it's a program of rigorous honesty. You just lied, you owe me an amends. I'll be in the back. <clears throat> because if you think about your ride over to this conference while you claim you were alone in the car, how many people were talking to you and you were answering them back while you're driving over here? We were having conversations with about 45 people all in the back seat going, look at you going to another conference. What's wrong? You should be home. You should be, and it goes on. And we should all over ourselves before we get to the conference. And then you know what happens when you walk in? They stay in the car. You walk into the conference and say, Joe, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm spiritual. <laughs> oh, my. I love AA, I'm spiritual, I do, I'm wonderful. I'm present to the moment. Then you get back in the car and the voice says, hey, what kind of nonsense are you? You're late, let's get out of here. Look at you, right? So my first few times meditating, I was talking to all of these people and I realized they've been around for the longest time. When people tell me I want to find myself, you don't want to find yourself, you don't want to know that guy. In fact, the guy you're looking for don't even exist. Part of walking through the world of the Spirit, realize I've been walking around with a case of mistaken identity for the longest time. <laughs> I had no idea what God was going to turn me into, and it's still a work in progress. I have no idea where God's taking me down the road. So I'm in this meditation, and two minutes became five minutes, and five minutes became seven minutes, and eight minutes, and then ten minutes, and I had a practice, a life of meditation, a life of prayer. 
and things get revealed to me when I start to get still. And I learn that when the traffic happens, don't fight it, just come back. Come back to breath, come back to breath. I'm giving attention to God and I wait. Like a child waiting for their parent. You just wait. Be childlike in front of God, be still. And so in the morning, that's what I do. On awakening, I immediately turn back to God. I go do my practice before I, you know, some of us want to get real spiritual, meditate after three uh, cups of coffee and 42 cigarettes. Okay, I'm going to get still now. And we're like vibrating like crackheads trying to get still. It doesn't work. There's no interruptions. I see these young folks, you know, knocking down Red Bulls, a carton of cigarettes. Where are you going? To meditate. They're not going to work. Our book says more will be revealed to us. Lots of times it'll happen while you're talking to me, but I'm coming from a place of stillness. Lots of times it'll be when I'm helping someplace, but I'm coming from a place of stillness. And it'll very often happen when there's nothing going on and I'm giving attention to God and I'm wide open, standing before my Creator in the raw. God, what do you got? Boss, what do you got? I'm ready to go to work. Where do you want me today? Where are you leading me? What do you want me to do today? Who am I supposed to speak to? I'm signing up for work. This is my job. Where am I going? It's your deal, not mine. I'm here to serve you. How could I be a servant to God when I'm a slave to worldly things? How could I live in godliness when I'm really all about worldliness? When I'm worshiping me, my pride, my idolatry, worship of other things. It's about surrendering to God and truly being a servant. In fact, the highest I can go in Alcoholics Anonymous when I'm at the upper echelon is servant. And who's ever first shall be last. And who's ever last shall be first. The spiritual path makes absolutely no sense to this thinking mind. There's no logic involved. But in the realm of the spirit, it makes perfect sense. Why shouldn't we, after suffering so long, know this God and get reborn and resurrected and stop suffering and stop the bleeding and walk around finally with some sense of dignity and self-respect and look to pass it on to others, not for a fee, for fun and for free. What a great life. What a great way to go. I love when I came around the real old-timers. Now, some of those real old-timers for a new guy were sober 20, 25 years, but I'm talking about the real elder statesmen. They sat in the back. Marion and I saw a couple of them last night. Marion said, I want to just sit with them and hear the stories. They weren't pretentious. They saw the new guy coming. They soon go, hey, kid, and then they knew your name. You've arrived, and you just sit with them, and they kind of, they cuddle around you. You're with us. You're with us. The people in Minnesota did that. When I got to Brooklyn, the old timers did that to me. You're with us. We'll take care of you. They would give me life experience. They would give me God experiences. They were the beacon that stood on a hill bright for me to see the way up. I need to do that. I need to keep the light on even when I'm not doing so good. Keep the light on because I don't know who's walking through the door. They need to see this. They need to see what goes on in here. They need to hear us talk about God with a certain uh, 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 honorable way, with a certain commitment to God. Not to prove to you I'm about God, but just the way we live. How our lives get transformed in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. So off I go for the day, and when I come back at night, I retire at night. And it's the same thing. I seek my God, do some meditation, and I do some prayer and um, uh, an inventory. 
There's some books I work with. I'm working with a couple of books right now. And I say working with them because I don't read books anymore. I read the newspaper. I read my, my progress reports on clients. But I work with these spiritual books because they need to be who I be. Like this big book is who I be. Don P., my grand sponsor, asked me one time, he said to me, he says, Pete, would you be able to take someone through the work without having a big book in front of you? I says, absolutely not. He says, keep coming back. He says, when that big book becomes part of who you be, you're able to transform that message and not have to refer to a few pages. I knew what he meant now. I knew what he meant now. And so when I work with these spiritual books, they need to become internalized to enhance the experience God has given me, to be transformed either further, to be pruned. The tree needs to be pruned to bear good fruit, to be an example of what this book talks about, what our sacred fellowship talks about, and be an example of this God. I'm an agent for God. Our big book tells us that. Am I doing a good job of representing God? He's the principal or his agents. An agent represents the principal. How am I doing? That's not for me to decide, that's for you to decide. Am I walking this walk when I'm away from a podium or have I become the AA school cop, the AA guardsman, the AA egomaniac, the bleeding deacon? Or am I an example? Can I learn from a person with 30 days? Can I learn from a person with 30 years? Am I still teachable? My 11 step keeps me going back. I sit in meditation, and I have found, I would tell you this from experience, that this power knows when we hurt. Like some of us who have children, you just look at your children, the little ones, and you just know something's wrong with John and Mary. You just, you just know, there's an intuitive. My God knows us, he created me, he knows when I'm not right. He knows when my heart hurts, when it's heavy, when my soul is hurting, when there's uncertainty and doubt and skepticism, and all I need to do, I have a step to do this. Father, in prayer meditation, help me. Another surrender. There have been riddles in my life that I tried to figure out. Could not. It would only get worse. But in that place of stillness and meditation, when the ground is fertile, God will do the growing, and God will serve us an answer. God will serve us direction. God will serve us an okayness. This all-merciful God that we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous, not enough, but we, we talk about it. You ever go to some meetings and you don't even hear God? They don't have the steps on the wall. There's no big book. There's no 12 traditions. I don't know where I am, but it looks like an AA meeting. And as soon as I leave, I need to run to another meeting to recover from the last meeting. (laughs) Then you go to some meetings and there's a spirit in the room. The coffee's cooking. The chairs are out. The literature's up. There's a chairperson. There's a greeter. And the speakers in the meeting is talking about God own conceptions of God, their own way of praying, their own way of meditating, but it's a God-filled room. As soon as you walk in, you go, I'm home. You can feel the healing. It's like God giving you one big massage. It's wonderful. But I take these riddles, I take these uncertainties, I take these doubts to my God, because one of the things I can tell you, it's a great thing to walk around with knowing that we're known by our Creator. It isn't a mystery anymore. God is still mysterious. God doesn't operate the way I do. God doesn't think the way I do. But I I know I'm known by him, and I can turn to him like a, a son turning to his dad. And God has given me some experience that have completely flipped me in AA, where I know. One of them, a couple of them had to do with my mom. 
One had to do with Marion in a day that was really difficult. In fact, that's what I'm getting to share with you. Marion had a horrible loss, three-month-old three still uh, uh, crib death. And on the birthday of this little boy, um, a few years ago, having a difficult time. And we were in prayer. She was in prayer. I was in prayer. And I says, Father, just, just help us through this. Help Marion through this difficult time. It's the anniversary of his little boy, Brian's uh, birthday. And so we went about our chores. Come back from the chores. We get up to our door. And on our floor, there were all adults, no children, no one with children. And one of the things we asked for, just give us a sign. This little boy's okay. That kind of thing. And we sit. We go about our day. We come back from shopping, and standing in front of us, our, our, our door, sitting in front of our door, is this little blue play school plastic chair. A little boy's chair. Where this chair came from, no one knows. Why our apartment, no one knows. We know. That chair is now draped in all sorts of religious articles next to my altar, and this little boy prays with us every morning and every night. This is the great work of God. These are things we get to experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was in a drunken stupor, I mean really serious trouble, I remember sitting on the edge of this, this bed and rocking back and forth, having like audio hallucinations. I wasn't in a blackout. I wasn't passed out. I was just in that place blind drunk, and I remember cursing and crying up to God. You ripped me off. You took my mom away from me when she was 14. How dare you? But if you bring her down from wherever the heck you are and just bring her here and let her hug me one time, I will quit drinking. I'm trying to negotiate with God, by the way. Even though I'm drunk, I'm still negotiating. That obviously didn't happen. And it was a few years later, God gets me sober. And I start working in meditation. And I would make a prayer for my mom wherever she is. Nine years into sobriety, I've been going to, not mass, but church, and lighting candles. I was lighting candle, one candle for my mom and one candle for the sick and suffering from early on in recovery. Once a week, sometimes twice, but once a week going to church, make prayer, candle for mom, candle for the sick and suffering, and out the door I go. All the time. Nine years of candles. I go into meditation, which our 11 step talks about. Some of us call it more comfortable with the word reflection, contemplation. It's okay as long as we're not getting hijacked by our mind while we're in there, a place of stillness, right? Because the mind will hijack us. And we go on these rants, we go on these tangents. But here I was. And this, I found these three pieces of meditation. You go in, you work with posture and breath, and then you hit a place that you're not even where you're there, and then you come out of meditation. That doesn't happen all the time. That's up to God when the ground is fertile. Nine years into meditation, and I visit a place that I wasn't aware I was even in meditation. <clears throat> I'm sitting on a beach. Anyone knows me knows I love, this is why I love Florida, being by the ocean. It is tranquil for me. I feel close to God, and that's where God put me. And off on the horizon appears the carpenter walking towards me, and literally out of his chest appears my mom, which my sponsor said, that's just to show you the oneness that we really have with God. We're part of this loving God. And as she walked towards me, I turned into a little eight-year-old boy. 
Now, between ages 8 and 10 of my life, it was horrific. Things were being done to me, uh, molestation, just a bad, bad time. My mom was overdosing and, and committed, trying to commit suicide. Ages 8 to 10 was just a black eye for me. And here I am, 8 years old, and my mom kneels down in this meditation with uh, tears of joy rolling down her cheeks and hugs me. Now, guys, when you're that age and mom gives you that mom hug, you're untouchable. It is the coolest thing in the world. No matter what went on, when mom hugs you, you're great. And that's what I was experiencing. And as I got up, I became an adult and she held on to me once more. And then something happened. My mom in this meditation points us off to the left and points off to the right and points at hundreds upon hundreds of candles, uh, of lights flickering. I didn't know what they were. My God put his arm around my shoulder without saying a word, says she's okay, she's with me. Never ever did I experience that much stillness and peace and tranquility. Unconditional love. She held on to me once more, they walked away, became one, I come out of meditation. Now till this day, I don't know if that meditation lasted two minutes or a half hour, I have no idea, but I came out of meditation and I'm weeping and I even feel myself weeping in this meditation. And I was also confused about what all the symbolism meant and I call my sponsor. Thank you God for great sponsorship that we have an Alcoholics Anonymous who can interpret for us. And I call up my sponsor, I share the experience, says, what's the lights? He says, Peter, without missing a beat. Haven't you been lighting candles for your mom nine years? And I said, yes. He says, she let you know she got them, that there is a thing that goes on that's watching us. This God knows you. It flipped me forever. I am convinced that my God knows me as much as he knows you, knows how many hairs I have on my head when my heart aches and when my ego's breathing a little too loud. He will discipline me like a loving parent trying to discipline our children. I'm like a child in front of God. So I work my step. 10. I work with my step 11. There's something substantial there. So when, when you come to me, I can pass it to you because that's what this is about. God feeds me. I feed you. You feed me. God feeds us. We never go away with an empty belly in Alcoholics Anonymous. Knocking a door will open. It's always been open for me. And for that, I owe you. That's all I got. Peace. <laughs>